you know, we all want to be innovators. We all want to be disruptors, et cetera. But for the most part, we innovate when things go wrong. We innovate when there's an obvious threat. In a similar way, poets, they are picking up their pens in times not just of like war and in times of heartbreak, although we associate poetry with a lot of those sorts of moments. They're picking up their pens every day and just saying, what is some weird, bizarre, esoteric shit I can do with language today that nobody may understand, but that no one has done before? And so having that attitude and that posture towards your art of like, I'm going to do this because I can do it and because it's different. And I hope that doing that enough times is going to keep me in a state of, uh, you know, maximizing my creative potential is a sort of energy that I think corporations that are doing really well and don't need to be worried about what the threats of tomorrow are yet can really benefit from. Welcome in to another episode of the Professional Profiles podcast that uncovers the time-tested wisdom for the next generation. Join me, a forward-thinking team, as I engage in insightful conversations with industry titans, revealing the invaluable ingredients that pave the way to achieving remarkable success. Today, I'm so lucky to introduce Mr. Tucker Bryant on the Profiles podcast. Fresh out of Stanford, Tuck went to work at Google and then transitioned into speaking full-time. He has shared stages with names such as Mark Cuban and Bill Belichick and has captivated audiences with his brilliant speeches. Mr. Bryant talks about how poetry and the creative process of poets can be applicable not only in a corporate context, but also for everyone else who solves problems in their lives. In this episode, we talked about Tucker's takeaways from his work at Google, working against perfectionism, developing curiosity, problem solving, risk mitigation, self-imposed constraints to increase productivity, learning to think disruptively, how AI will influence the creative process, and much, much more. I cannot overstate how much I enjoyed my conversation with Tuck. He is an incredible person with an incredible message, and I really hope that you go support his work. Here's the interview. All right. So thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate your time and I'm really looking forward to talking with you. It's awesome to be here, man. Thanks for the the invitation. I think it's going to be a great conversation. Of course. Me too. I'm looking forward to it. So I would first love to hear about what your career path looked like to this point in time that you are now. So what do you do currently and how did you get there? Yeah. So uh, today I am a keynote speaker and poet and uh those two things are both things that I think people might not have a super clear idea of what that looks like as a career. Um, but basically, I go to corporate conferences and uh, association conferences and other sorts of events and help folks see the intersection between poetry and innovation as a means of looking for more creative ways to approach the problems they're facing in the work that they currently do. And so the way that I ended up doing this work is that in college, I discovered and fell in love with poetry, would you know spend way too much time on this and way too little time on my studies. And by the end of college, you know, all my friends had like gone and done these really impressive internships at JP Morgan and Facebook and places like this. And I had been, you know, sitting in my room writing about Jasmine tea and I hadn't done a thing basically. And I was super, I was honestly like very insecure about that and was like, I need to pay my corporate dues and give up this poetry junk because, you know, that's what pays the bills. And so I kind of like informally stopped writing poetry and kind of threw myself into 
the corporate tech world. Um, I spent a couple of years at the the online or the website WikiHow. All websites are online um, as a project manager there, and then I joined Google as a product marketing manager and worked there for a few years. But while I was at Google, one thing that I noticed was that there were all these sorts of challenges to be creative that leadership would sort of uh, push, not you know, not like uh, in, a, in an inappropriate way, but would like push on people to try to adopt. Um, but there were all these forms of resistance that I feel like a lot of my peers had, that I had, or that the environment didn't seem like it was the best to stimulate in all instances. Not all the time. Obviously, Google's like an incredible company that's doing lots of really cool stuff. But it just occurred to me that a lot of the things that we were being encouraged to do were things that poets are trying to do in their work every day. They sit down um, and you know pick up their pen and, and try to write a new poem. And so I thought there might be some uh, some tools that poets use to do that work in their day-to-day life that people in a corporate context might be able to benefit from and, um, you know, get something out of from a different perspective. And so I kind of found a way to bring those two worlds together and, uh, you know, the rest is history. So I'd love to just focus in on Google for a sec, and I promise we'll jump to your work now, but Google is an incredibly selective company and they have this culture or are thought of to have this culture of innovation and collaboration. And I'd love to hear some of your insights and what you've learned from your time there. Yeah. Uh, funnily enough, I mean, I think the biggest thing that I learned at Google, well, I mean, there, there were a lot of things I learned at Google. It's a place of incredibly smart people doing really cool stuff. But I think like one of the things I picked up was the importance of being able to be kind of scrappy and imperfectionist and a little bit egoless because there are just so many things going on no matter what kind of work you're doing and they're happening really fast. And it's really easy, especially if you've come from an environment in which you're used to at least trying to overachieve. Uh, it's really easy to get caught up in like this person's work is, you know, this much more impressive than mine, or, you know, I'm afraid of bringing this kind of product to that person because if this, you know, leader sees this and it's not super, super polished, then like, they might think of me in a less whatever way. Basically, all these all these things that are like motivated by ego, and uh, you know, I think Google has been able to thrive in large part because it has a history of just like earnest people wanting to do cool stuff, and like you know, the phrase what is the phrase "move fast and break things" kind of vibe. And I think there are a lot of things about a big co- a company, a big corporation, that make that difficult sometimes. And so looking for ways to instill this kind of like experimental imperfectionist attitude in yourself, even if you're in that kind of environment that's really large and sometimes is slowed down by bureaucracy, I think is, is beneficial to the system you operate in, beneficial to yourself, and at the end of the day, beneficial to the people that the work you're doing is likely to actually reach. So there are a bunch of things, but that's the first thing that comes to my mind when you ask that question. For sure. And Google has this reputation also of being an incredibly selective company. So they hire really selectively. And I, I want to ask you, what do you think separated you from your fellow candidates? Like, What made you a good fit for Google initially? Yeah, I, I have to make the disclaimer up front that I think like a lot of the people that don't get a job at Google are still overqualified. 
um, I think there are more people that are able to get into a Google or a Facebook than they have space for at any given time for the most part. And so I know you kind of prefaced this, but I don't know that I am actually more qualified than a lot of other people who might not have gotten the role that I did. But the way that Google interviews is they have determined that there are these four factors that predict success in a career at Google. They're your general cognitive ability, your Googliness, which is kind of like, do you collaborate well? Do you work with team? You know, do you do the right thing is the way they're kind of thinking of that. Um, your role related knowledge. Uh, so if you're applying for a marketing job like I was, like, have you, you know, do you have experience there or have you at least done some reading that might inform that? And what are your leadership skills and leadership experiences? How would you deal with different forms of, of conflict that might come up? And so, you know, I did my best to kind of showcase that I had at least some exposure to all those things, except for the general cognitive ability piece. Um, and so, you know, I think one thing that was really helpful for me was spending some time just thinking about the product space, because Google is one of those companies that for a lot of roles that you're applying for that are not technical, uh, like mine was not at this early graduate, postgraduate phase, they are more concerned with knowing that you're going to be able to figure the thing out and you're passionate about the opportunity to figure the thing out rather than like, you know, oh, I've won 17 awards in my time as a 13 year old. And so spending some time learning about the products that Google offers, developing a, a perspective on successful marketing efforts, unsuccessful ones, most of which in the interview were probably wrong, but that I had at least like taken some time to think about, I think uh, gave them maybe a little bit of confidence that I was going to try to at least figure things out when I when I got in. And then on the leadership piece, I'll say this because I think it's probably relevant to, to all your listeners. Um, one thing that Google really cares about, I don't know if they still use this term, but when I applied, the phrase they used was called emergent leadership. And the way they describe this is it's leadership that transcends job title. And the reason that they cared about this in marketing is that a lot of the time a product marketer at Google is going to be kind of like the glue of a campaign that involves a bunch of people from different job titles, engineers, UX, policy, PR, et cetera, many of whom are going to be more senior than you and none of whom have the uh, explicit role of being the leader. So they want to be able to see how folks can navigate being leaders without having that being a job title, if that makes sense. And so, um, yeah, I think being able to describe or show instances in which there might not have been a specific title that somebody had to kind of like uh, imply that they were the explicit leader and still being able to emerge as a leader in those situations is something that not only Google cares about, but a lot of companies that are going to be, you know, putting junior people in the same space as people with more experience is, is an important thing to be able to showcase. For sure. And now I want to transition from your work at Google to now your work with speaking. So what caused you to make this shift and what motivated you to do so? Yeah, it was a couple of things. Um, it's funny, the the poetry thing I had gotten rid of when I left college. And then I think like somebody happened to discover a video or something while I was at Google and was kind of like, oh, hey, this is cool. I love, you, know, you should share it with the team. And so 
you know, I put together this little presentation uh, that kind of talked about poetry and, and talked about how I saw it being maybe relevant to the work that we were doing as marketers. And that was my first time thinking, oh, wait a second. I, I think there are actually some similarities between the goals that a poet has and the goals that somebody in a corporate setting has. And specifically, the reason I think Google was like the right environment for me to start to tease out some of these connections is that, um, you know, we all want to be innovators. We all want to be disruptors, et cetera. But for the most part, we innovate when things go wrong. We innovate when there's an obvious threat. Generative AI has just started to threaten, you know, our ability to be successful as writers or a pandemic happened and we got to figure out how to get our teams to meet without being able to meet in person. And that's all well and good. But during the other 95% of the time when it feels like we're chilling and we've got everything under control, then people's energy for disruption suddenly is a little bit more, you know, yeah, let's, we'll think about it. This is great to, to think about. And that is kind of the space, in my opinion, that Google has operated in for a lot of the last couple of decades, not couple of decades, last decade maybe, that it's been so successful. Um, and that's to no fault of anybody. That's just like a, you know, a reality of human nature. But in a similar way, poets, they are picking up their pens in times not just of like war and in times of heartbreak, although we associate poetry with a lot of those sorts of moments. They're picking up their pens every day and just saying, what is some weird, bizarre, esoteric shit I can do with language today that nobody may understand, but that no one has done before? And so having that attitude and that posture towards your art of like, I'm going to do this because I can do it and because it's different. And I hope that doing that enough times is going to keep me in a state of, uh, you know, maximizing my creative potential is a sort of energy that I think corporations that are doing really well and don't need to be worried about what the threats of tomorrow are yet can really benefit from. And so, um, yeah, that was kind of the first moment of seeing like there might be something here. And, uh, and you know, after exploring that within Google for, I guess, around probably, you know, eight to 10 months, um, I, I took the leap in August of 21 and, and, and went full time into speaking around that time. Very cool. So now I'd love to hear about how you help business leaders discover how they can unlock doors to change using the post keys. So could you speak to that point and what you talk about with your presentations? A hundred percent. Yeah. So this is a little bit related to what we were talking about previously, but you know, so if we know that every business wants to be adept at innovating, but they don't always feel tapped into their team's ability to drive innovation. Um, but this is what poets are trying to do every day. There might be these these specific behaviors that we can leverage in a corporate setting to, to do the same thing. And so what I kind of took some time to explore and ultimately identified is that there are five main behaviors that I think a poet is generally trying to instill in their practice, even if they're not actively aware of it, in order to keep their craft in evolution. And so um, those uh, those tools, those keys are curiosity, figurative thinking, imperfectionism, musicality, and expression. And so by sort of delineating those five keys, what happened after that is that anytime I'd start to work with a client, 
you know, we'd start talking about the, the situation that they're dealing with. Oh, this client's been working on a really huge monster of a project for two years. People are feeling beleaguered. They don't see, feel like it's possible for them to get through it. Um, you know, in that kind of situation, what are some things that a poet might experience if they were dealing with a similar challenge, right? If, if they're trying to deal with the, the unlikelihood of, of a, uh, an imaginative metaphor being able to, to be written, how would they approach that challenge? And so by understanding what the challenges are that these clients are going through and thinking about an analogous situation in, in the experience of a poet, there are these new ways we can try to get folks to perceive the challenges that they deal with on a daily basis or weekly, monthly, yearly, whatever, um, and hopefully leave with some takeaways that'll, that'll get them moving um, with some new, some new perspective, a new direction. All right. So could we dive into what you mean by curiosity, the first step in, or first key? Yeah. Yeah. So the way that I think of curiosity is it's like the antithesis to tunnel vision, right? For most of us, we, even if we're not aware of it, we end up developing a comfort and routine, which is like important and it helps us be efficient and is the reason that a lot of, you know, new and explosive ideas end up being refined into these repeatable processes that can end up being really successful and impactful. But it's also the way that we end up closing our eyes to what could be different. And so a poet, their work in my mind kind of begins the moment they choose to actively break from routine and ask questions or, you know, state observations about their environment, because then the world that seemed predictable yesterday becomes malleable. They can, you know, start to enjoy or appreciate something about the tree that's outside there. I don't know what kind of tree I'm looking at that's outside my window, but like this kind of tree, if I'm just walking from my house to the grocery store without stopping and looking, I'm not going to realize that there's like a dozen poems in that thing. And so uh, as far as curiosity uh, is a tool that can be applied in a corporate context, the way that I think of it is like, what areas of your work or in what areas of your, of your work are you spending more time maintaining things that you created in the past than writing new things? And what are the questions we can ask about what could be different that uh, might be able to lead us in a new direction? Okay. Next, was it figurative thinking? Was that too? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Figurative thinking is, uh, it's the question of how we deal with what feel like impossible challenges. Um, the way that I think of this is like poets craft metaphors that on paper feel ridiculous if you were to think of them literally, right? Like when Shakespeare compares his lover's face to a summer's day, it's not because his lover's face is red and, you know, full of bugs, probably. Um, but, you know, we suspend disbelief to create this new con connection in our head and, uh, have a new way of seeing this thing, this lover's face or whatever the thing that is the, the sort of the target of the metaphor. And so for someone in a corporate context, it's like if you're dealing with a challenge that feels intractable for a really long period of time, how do we get past that feeling of absurdity or that feeling of impossibility? And so there are a bunch of exercises we can do to start to like probe new thinking on these things um, and think kind of figuratively about them. Like, Instead of trying to ask yourself how to solve the problem that you're, you know, 
banging your head on the desk against to try to solve. Why not instead ask yourself how you can make that problem worse? List 20 things that could happen to make the problem worse. And of course, none of those things we would actually want to do. But by the end of listing those 20 things, you've now got 20 features that you might not have been aware of are actually really important to you as uh, features that you could you know, tweak in order to get closer to a better destination. So there are ways of, of thinking about the problem in kind of absurd terms that can counterintuitively lead us uh, in a direction that feels more productive and more helpful. All right. Could you jump into number three? I didn't get yeah, what you said. It's but. cool. They're, they're all made up words. So like, it's definitely not your fault if, if they're hard to catch. So number three, that's imperfectionism. And imperfectionism, as the name, I'm sure you probably into it. It's the opposite of perfectionism. It's the thought that anything worth doing well is worth doing really terribly. And that adopting that mindset is kind of the way that we start to make progress on an experiment that's worth experimenting on. Um, the problem with imperfectionism, though, is that like people often when it comes time to take the first step towards a thing, because, you know, curiosity and figurative thinking, they're like the ideas phase, right? Imperfectionism is the first moment at which we start to actually do something. But it can feel really overwhelming to see before you this huge ambiguous challenge like how do i increase trust on my team like that's a big thing and the thought of dealing with a challenge that big all at once can be so overwhelming for a lot of folks as to stop them from doing anything at all and so the question becomes how can we leverage things like constraints to make these overwhelming elements of these big challenges feel more manageable so that we can just get ourselves to move forward without having to worry about whether what we're trying is perfect, knowing that any progress is all is, is better than no progress. So um, a good example of this in poetry, there's this, uh, on the topic of constraints, there's this style of poetry called erasure poetry in which the poet doesn't actually write any words of their own. They instead, they take an existing text and they create a new poem by just removing words from that text. And so what happens is they end up creating this new thing. It doesn't feel like this thing that, you know, they have to feel super personal about or feel like it has to be perfect because there are these constraints that are imposed on them that might guide their decision-making in a new direction. But all of a sudden it's like, you've got this idea or this thing that you've created uh, that is much better than having nothing. And so uh, what I often ask, ask clients on the topic of imperfectionism is, is like, if you had to remove what you perceive as an essential component of a product you offer, a service you offer, a process that your team relies on, what would that thing become? This doesn't mean necessarily that we would, you know, again, make these subtractions, but the exercise I think is really helpful as far as getting folks to see that there can be ways to experiment uh, that don't have to be fully baked uh, when we start dealing with them. We like get the ideas out, we run the experiments first, and then when we've done the very sort of, you know, blue sky thinking and experimentation, after that, we can start culling down and figuring out what in our experimentation process was effective and what wasn't um, and what we want to hold on to and what we want to get rid of. Okay. And... I think this idea of imperfectionism is really important. And I, as a self-proclaimed perfectionist, I feel like this is something I battle with a lot. And 
I'd love if you could to just talk about that in the context of maybe not just businesses, but everyday people. Could you speak to perfectionism and imperfectionism? Yeah, totally. Um, I'm going to, I, I like, cause I, I talk so around this. So humor me here. I'm going to give just some like kind of random thoughts, but what I've come to think of perfectionism as being is really just an inability for us to separate a thing we create or a thing we do from how we see ourselves as like whole beings. It's like if I put a piece of work out or have a conversation with a new person that has an awkward moment, I'm going to feel like I suck because that conversation or that thing I tried is all of me. You know, it's, it's a hundred percent me. And of course that's like, that's like not true. It's just one piece of you, you know, a shitty poem that I write, which I write many of every week is one of many shitty poems. Um, but there's something to be said for putting out a bunch of like C work, C plus work, C minus work, and then being able to improve on that as, as you go along. So for me, like the, the process is really about finding ways to make the work or the action just feel less personal and actually distance yourself and how you see yourself and, and your ego from the thing that you're doing or creating. And I think that doesn't have to be just work related. It can be personal. Again, it can be about how we deal with relationships, how we, um, you know, how we show up to our hobbies or extracurriculars, things like this. And, you know, everyone's going to have a different thing that works for them. For me, it really has been the constraints that have been the most helpful in, in allowing that work or that behavior to feel less personal. And so uh, there are three constraints that I might forget now that I will kind of like routinely try to implement on a poem or on something else I'm trying to do. There are constraints on time, constraints on style, and constraints on output. Uh, I think finding one of those three things and thinking of what a constraint is of any of those types that you could put on a thing you're trying to do, a project you're launching, a, you know, a hobby you want to pursue, volunteer at, whatever, I think is a good way to start sort of convincing yourself or reminding yourself that these things that we do are small pieces of us and it doesn't have to be that deep, basically. For sure. And to your comment about you write every week, there's an old, and I don't know how old, but there's a, a thing that writers say, and it's kind of a, maybe a mantra, but it's like two crappy pages a day. And it's basically just write. Like you don't have to make it perfect. Could you uh, maybe elaborate on that? Yeah. And like, I, I totally, I totally relate to that. Another one that I've heard that I really like is like when I write, I aim for the trash can, which is like so dramatic, but I have to remind myself of that all the time because you know, it's easy for us to have this conversation now and be like, oh, it's so good to be imperfectionist. And like, it's so much better to kind of just, you know, try things out and not worry about getting it perfect right every time. I have, I guarantee you that in two days, I'm going to be writing a poem on my phone and it's going to look crappy and I'm going to feel frustrated at myself or feel sad or be like, oh, I'm a terrible poet, all these sorts of things. And so, yeah, it's, it's not, you know, I don't want to undervalue the difficulty that it can, that a person can have in sort of moving towards integrating imperfectionism and, and so on the two crappy pages a day thing i think what a lot of people have a hard time remembering in creative work including myself is that 
you're not expected to necessarily know what the thing is you want to create when you first sit down to create it. We think like we're supposed to be hit by this bolt of inspiration and it just runs through us. And then we furiously write or play the guitar or whatever else or whatever else it is. And then we have this beautiful thing. You're searching. The act of creating is an act of searching, right? And so what the crappy pages do, as long as you're consistently putting them out, is that they give you something to search within. So I guarantee you that, again, I will write a bunch of terrible poems over the next three weeks. And genuinely, 95% of the lines in those poems will be awful. But when reading back some of those poems, once I get over my frustration and stop kicking myself in two months and I go back and read, I'll find like one to three lines. And I'll be like, oh, that, that was kind of interesting, maybe. There might be something there. And so then now you've got a place to search and a place to build out from. So the two crappy pages thing, in my view, is about planting the seeds that you can then nurture once you're done with the crappy pages. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think the simplest way for me to summarize it is like when you're making stuff, you don't have to assume you already know what the thing is or what it's supposed to be. Like you're you're searching for that and it takes doing things terribly sometimes to have a place to search. For sure. And you just talked about how you sometimes write the poems on your phone. When does inspiration strike you? And when do you find that you have the ability to ident- sorry, to generate ideas no, effectively? That's a good question. I know when I don't have the ability, which is maybe equally revealing. I, I have a really hard time feeling you know, able to write freely if I'm really stressed, um, if my mind is really preoccupied and I'm thinking about things that are not what's in front of me. So I think a certain amount of like presence, it, mindfulness, whatever you want to call it, is is helpful. Um, but actually, I mean, this is like a, I guess this probably isn't a hot take, but I actually think that it's more valuable to be able to figure out ways to show up and do the work when you don't feel inspired. Because at least for me, and maybe I'm just like more depressive than 95% of people out there, but the inspiration is fleeting. And there might be moments where like I'm walking down the park, and I'm like, oh, this line that's in my head is kind of rhythmic, whatever. And I'll write that on my phone, but then that'll be 10 seconds and then I'll keep going. Um, and so I think being able to show up for yourself in those other moments when you don't feel, you know, the the energy running through you is super, super valuable because even if it doesn't feel as, you know, romantic or um, clearly aligned in those moments, being able to show up for yourself at those times is often what leads to us being able to just create a body of work in the course of 5, 10, 20 years, um, which is arrogant of me to say because I've only been writing poetry for 10 years, so you know, take that with a grain of salt. But I know that if I only wrote when I was inspired, I would have like three poems today. <laughs> so well, yeah, I appreciate that's, you that's touching on that because I think that is super important and a really big idea that more people need to hear for sure. Um, to move on though, number four on your keys, what would that be? I have number five, but I didn't quite catch number four. No, you're good. Again, these are all made up terms. So it, that's on me if you can't remember them. Um, it's musicality. Okay. And so the way that I frame musicality is it's kind of like the leadership and empathy type key in this sort of disruptive thinking framework. Think of it like this. So 
we've all had that, that experience in high school of reading a poem that is so abstract you get to the end of it and you're just like what on earth was that i don't want to touch this thing again ozymandias what you know whatever it was um and so when a poet is leading their audience through language in a really new and unfamiliar way one thing they can do this is not the only thing they can do and it's not necessarily the thing they have to do but one thing they can do is use elements of music rhythm rhyme repetition that the reader can kind of hold on to as they're going through this material that feels unfamiliar because having that sense of familiarity or that sense of comfort can let them know by the end of the thing that like, okay, there's something in here that I kind of get and maybe I can at least, you know, hang my head on or, you know, hang my head on understanding how that made me feel and build out from there as I try to develop a relationship to this poem. And so when leaders are doing the kind of stuff that the rest of these keys are trying to get them to do through curiosity, through figurative thinking, through imperfectionism, what we're doing is we're, we're driving change, right? We're driving disruption. That's the, that's the goal. We're trying to do something unconventional for the benefit of our teams, our industries, our space, whatever. Um, and a lot of the time, those changes are going to lead to a lot of discomfort and a lot of confusion, a lot of fear, a lot of anxiety. And so musicality is the question of, it's a terrible, I'm just going to say it's a terribly picked term because it doesn't intuitively link to this, but it's the one that I picked. So there we go. Um, musicality is the question of how does the leader hold the person they're leading or the team they're leading's hands with compassion, with understanding? How do they sort of reach across the aisle to understand what the experience is of the folks that are on the other side of this change? to kind of give them the confidence that they can make it through this unusual period of, of evolution. Um, yeah, so musicality is, is very rooted in kind of empathy, less so than in kind of like the other sort of creativity tools that we're talking about in some of this. Um, but I think it's, it's equally important because, you know, the most meaningful changes aren't going to be the ones that happen in a vacuum, you know, and, and, we got to have folks along with us if we want to be able to do uh, all that we can. Okay. So I'd love to get to expression in a second, but I want to go back to a question that I had earlier, which is how do you see artificial intelligence impacting creative work and poetry and the way, I guess what, what you're really passionate about, how do you see that playing out? Yeah, that's a really good question. There are two things that I think about on this and like, I will not claim to be anywhere near an expert on some of this. Uh, very, very, very far from it. So take my perspective with a grain of salt. But they're kind of two things. I'll say it like this. I am kind of terrified about the, like the, the very broad scale potential of some of these changes when we look 30 to 50 years out. Um, but it's a very like ambiguous fear. Like, you know, it, yeah, it's not like it's tied in a particular outcome. The unknown is kind of frightening, but there are two things that I am really excited about um, that relate to creativity in the era of, of AI. The first is that there's just going to be a lot more shit that people are going to be inspired by uh, because there's going to be so much more stuff that's made. And I think that that 
is only a good thing. If there's more material for folks to find, uh, there's a greater chance of them hitting on something that does strike their heart. And I'm sure there's going to be a lot of crap. It's going to be, you know, sort of cookie cutter stuff that can get made in a couple of seconds. And so, you know, we disregard all that. Um, but I think it's only a good thing that they're going to be, you know, I'm going to read AI generated poetry. That's going to be using language in ways that I have never seen done before. And that's going to aid me in my searching for a voice. And I think the same is going to go for, musicians and and folks of all different kinds of art and who are involved in creativity. But then the other thing, um, if we look less on the what AI can produce side and more in the what AI can collaborate with us on side, I'm really excited to have uh, like this new thought partner when it comes to brainstorming ideas. I think there's going to be this this shift from art being owned by people who are craftspeople who are really good at you know a, a, a technical skill that is involved in their art the doors are going to be open to people who are good at asking questions and who have a very specific vision that they can articulate through language uh not languages in poetry but language they articulate to an llm or whatever else it is those folks who might not be the craftspeople are not going to be able to create as well. Um, and even for the crafts people, they're going to have a, an easier time creating by engaging with these questions that they ask about the way they see the world. And so, you know, there's already a great example of this, because I know that was kind of up in the air. Um, Google recently launched this, this set of tools called text FX. That's, um, it's geared towards, I think you say rappers, writers, wordsmiths. And it's basically nine tools that do a bunch of different things with language. There's like an alliteration tool. There's a tool that develops sensory details about uh, a certain scene. There's a tool that makes a certain scene unexpected. So if I put into this tool, I'm sitting on a hill and I hit, you know, run, this tool will give me back 25 scenarios like sitting on a hill in the Obama's house, sitting on a hill made of marshmallows, sitting on a hill and a meteor hits my nose. Those are terrible. But <laughs> these are all like really fast ways that we're going to be able to just have this idea exchange happening that'll lead us to places that, again, make it easier for us to figure out what our voice is. And so obviously I'm thinking about this largely from the perspective of poetry, but I, I can only imagine that those applications will apply to anyone who's involved in making art or doing creative stuff. And so I think that both of those things, the like democratization and whatever the other thing is, what I said, I think they're both going to be very good for creativity as a whole. Absolutely. And to a point that you were just making, if you want better answers, you ask better questions. And I think that 100%. is going to be something in the future, especially with prompt engineering and stuff like ChatGPT. like the input really dictates the output. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, it's going to be cool to see. For sure. So moving on, fifth and final one, expression. So can you dive into that a bit? Yeah. So best way to frame this is a poem is kind of only as powerful as the ears that it reaches. I mean, that's, that's one way of putting this. Um, a poem can obviously be very impactful to the writer, even if they don't share it. But... Um, there's a different kind of power 
that comes from, you know, stepping onto the stage with a new idea and sharing that with an audience that is yet to hear it. And so the way that I think of this is like, what do we do to sort of start to champion some of the difficult conversations with folks that we live and work around uh, that we might tend to avoid um, as a means of being able to to come to new places in the relationships we have with people. And so, you know, I think there are a lot of teams in businesses, in schools, in households that have a tendency to tiptoe around touchy topics uh, that have the benefit, had the potential if explored of, you know, building a new form of intimacy between folks. Um, and so this is the question of kind of what are the poems that, you're avoiding, that you're not sharing, and um, who are the people in your world, in your space, that would benefit from you sort of finding ways to broach those conversations. So those obviously look very different for different people. Um, but uh, I think whether you're a poet or you're an executive trying to build psychological safety on your team, being able to at least name those poems is the first step to kind of finding out what what world lies on the next page, so to speak. All right. And I'm going to end with this question that I ask everyone, which would be, if you had a billboard that could be put in front of millions of eyes, what would you put on it? And why would it be that? And this could be an idea, quote, um, anything really. Oh man, that is such a good question. I'm a big uh, riddle nerd. Uh, anyone, you know, I, I drove down to LA with, some friends maybe like last year, it was probably two years ago. And we spent the entire six hours down and six hours up just riddling. And so I think I would have to put a riddle out. I'm trying to figure out what the riddle would be that I'd want. I want to put something that would like really get people arguing in the car. Like, you know, you're kind of silent and you look up and you see like, what would happen if Pinocchio said his nose was about to grow? And then all of a sudden there's like this huge vitriolic, battle happening between the two people in the car for the next two hours i want something like that um and so yeah i think let's let's say that let's say what would happen if pinocchio said my nose is about to grow because i think that's an easy and kind of unanswerable mm -hmm. one but i'm sure that i'll come back to you in a couple of weeks with an even better riddle that that we can argue about someday that's it's quite paradoxical uh, just trying to first start to think about that okay just to yes, end that one Yes, exactly. Just to end, how can people find you and follow what you do and any plugs that you want to make for my audience? I appreciate it. Yeah, you can find me at TuckerBryantSpeaks.com. Hit me up on LinkedIn, Tucker, not TuckerBryant.com, LinkedIn.com slash in slash TuckerBryant. Um, I post some guitar videos on my Instagram account, which is I am Tux. But, you know, if you just reach out any of these places, we can connect one-on-one. -on -one. I feel like that's always the, the best way to, to get to know people. So, yeah, always down to, always down to meet new folks. And, and uh, I'm, I'm stoked to get to be on the show with you. Well, I appreciate your time. I really enjoy this conversation. And I uh, look forward to seeing what you have in store in the future. Likewise. I'm very excited for your exploration. And I'm sure we're going to stay closely in touch.